Lord, let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so we begin with the reading from Psalm 26, verses 1 to 10. Actually, it says 25 in our uh, hymnal, but I believe it will be better if I preach Psalm 26. So this ought to be interesting. <laughs> All right, here we go. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with, sin, with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. That's the word of God for the people of God, too. Thanks be to God. I got to check something out real quick here. Okay. So I was going to open with a confession, and now I'm just more committed to it than ever. <laughs> I plan for our Sunday services, probably because of that instruction that I got years ago about their relentless regularity. I plan well in advance. And uh, no matter how well you plan, things go wrong. But I, uh, I plan way out and I trust that the same spirit who is present in this moment as I speak to you is present in the planning. And, and, uh, but there are times and I have one this week. When I look at what I've planned and I scratch my head, <laughs> I say, Lord, what were we thinking? What were we thinking? I won't lie, it is a thing with me at Christmas time where I'm always tempted to try something a little radical just because, you know, Christmas comes with relentless regularity too. And there's a very simple temptation to, to uh, try to shake it up a little bit. <laughs> But I have to admit that I spent a great deal. I'll tell you how bad it is. I, I, took, I told Katrina, uh, whenever I was working on this, I, I said, Katrina, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> I'm really not sure where to go with this. And I'm sure, as you have surmised, that Psalm 26 doesn't exactly feel like something you would read on the last Sunday before Christmas. But being faithful to my task and trusting that the Spirit is at work in me, I said, well, we're just going to figure out where the Lord wants to go with this, and we're going there as fearlessly and recklessly as necessary. So I did what I always do when Scripture puzzles me. And as you probably know, if you've been around me for a while, I love the Bible. And I don't find any of it to be fruitless. And so I delight in doing exactly what we're going to do today. Just taking this 
passage apart and figuring out what it says to me. And here's what I came up with on this Sunday before Christmas, reading Psalm 26. The first verses say, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I've walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. Well, one thing I picked up right away was that the cry for vindication is something that is all over the Old Testament. Israel is always crying for vindication. Vindication is a word that basically would be uh, best understood in the context of, of a trial. Someone's been accused of a crime. The district attorneys made their case. It goes to trial. This person is convinced of their innocence their defense attorney is convinced of their innocence, but they have to prove to a jury and a judge and a legal system that they are innocent. And the defense attorney goes to great efforts to vindicate his client or her client. And so when the people of Israel are crying out throughout the Old Testament to God, vindicate us, they mean defend us against our enemies and prove to them that we are just. Now, that concept definitely plays into Christmas, and here's why. Because in a way, God too is being vindicated. Every time Israel cries out for vindication, God is faced with a situation where God has to decide to what extent their vindication is also God's vindication. You know, there are people in the Bible that we've read about in cases like Moses, for example, will plead with God and say, no, 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 don't wipe them out. You gotta understand if you do that, then all the people in Egypt and all those people that you kicked around trying to prove that these were your favorite folks, they're all going to be right in their own eyes, and you can't let that happen. And Moses convinces God that he should go ahead and provide grace and forgiveness for God's people. So this whole concept of vindication, it's built into their lexicon. It's a natural part of being Israel to cry out for vindication. And they're very aware that sometimes they are indefensible. <laughs> They're very aware that at times they don't deserve vindication, but they cry out for vindication anyway for God's name's sake. They play this card that they have, and we'd be wise to remember this too. They play that card with God that Moses played, that Abraham played, that David played, knowing that we're indefensible, knowing that we are not justified in asking God to make us look right in the eyes of our fellow men and women, but God is justified in making God's self entirely justified in the eyes of the enemy. And who's the real enemy anyway? It's not people. You go back to the, to the most fundamental issue of the human God relationship. You go back to Eden 
And you realize that at the very beginning of the Bible, within the earliest verses of Scripture and the, and the beginning of the story of God's created people, Satan enters the picture, tempts them away from God, and later accuses God, like in Job. And so we remember that Satan's principal role, ho Satan, remember that old Hebrew word, the accuser. And you know how I like to say that it points that bony, crooked finger of accusation. And so who's the real enemy? Who's the one before whom vindication is so important? It's the accuser. And it's impossible for us to comprehend, but let's just go there on this Sunday before Christmas where we also read a familiar story of angels in heaven and all of that celebrating the glory of God. Let's just remember that a third of that body of heavenly host fell under the deception of the one we call Satan and took up sides with him against God. That this is part of the biblical narrative that we should always keep in mind if we're going to understand why Christmas is necessary, why the cross is necessary, why the grave and the resurrection is necessary, why the Holy Spirit is necessary. Why is all of this necessary? Because a third of the heavenly host believed Satan's accusations were justified and true. And there are throughout the world people just like us in some ways that believe Satan's accusation and lie. So when we say, Lord, bring vindication, like the psalmist, what we're saying is, is if you don't vindicate me for my sake, vindicate me for your sake. And it makes all the difference. When you pray and you ask God to heal the sick and take away pain, you ask God to fix financial problems, you ask God to fix community and family dynamics that are broken. When you ask God for help with all these various and sundry things in our lives, remember this. Your card, your ace card, but play it carefully, play it wisely, is Lord vindicate yourself before the enemy. Don't let this dysfunction and this disorder and this chaos that I'm pleading with you to help me through be a sign that the enemy is right. Now you're praying something that's got some meat on the bones. There's a prayer that'll get God's attention. Let's read from the Bible again. If you want to follow, you may. Otherwise, just listen. I'm going to turn now to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter uh, 3. 2 Peter 3 is very near the back of the Bible. 2 Peter 3, starting at verse 3, says this. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is this promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, 
All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. See, Peter is reminding us that there's nothing new about this bony finger of accusation. It'll be there in the end, in the last days. Some people think we're living in those now. The honest truth is, is of course we are. I mean, want to get technical about it. When are you not living in the last days? So no, this isn't one of those prophecy sermons. And no, I'm not going to point to a lot of news and current affairs and tell you that this is a sign that we're living in the last days. Just rest assured, we're living in the last days. Every generation is living in the last days and every generation sees scoffers pointing that ugly bony finger of contempt, accusing God. And for this reason, we must be steadfast. And you know, I've mentioned to you in different settings about this phrase, Maranatha, this term that was used by the early believers. It's a term that we don't really have an English equivalent to, but it basically means, Lord, come quickly, but hold on just a second. I think this guy might join us before you get here. It's a word that means, come quickly, Lord, but not so quickly that I can't bring other people into the fold. And oh, by the way, come quickly because your name is at stake. And the longer you delay, the more tempted people will be to think that you're not really everything we claim that you are. So Maranatha is a cry like that. So when we finish this Advent season with this fourth Sunday of Advent, and I tell you each week that Advent is about the second coming, this is what I mean. It's a Maranatha cry and not a memory of a past event that we've turned to a lot of sweetness and songs and things like that. All of that's good and fine and let's enjoy it this coming week, but rest assured that when all the decorations get put away and they stop playing all those sweet Christmas songs, Jesus is still coming. That the Maranatha cry is still a legitimate prayer for you to pray every day. But now, pray it like the psalmist with a cry that the Lord's good name would be vindicated. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. Well, before I go on to my next point, may I just say that when we read this passage, it's tempting to think that this psalmist is a rather high opinion of himself. But remember, and this one is, is one of those that the scholars are sure was penned by David, or at least the scholars are, are as certain as anyone could be. And so we know David's story, and we know he ain't that good. He, he tries. We all try. But... What he's saying is, is, Lord, when I do it right, it's really hard. <laughs> when I do my very best to honor you and glorify you in the way that I live, it's difficult. And so the psalmist is reminding us that we need consolation. 
Jesus is God's consolation. In fact, I would ask you to look at Isaiah chapter 40 now, if you want to keep following along with me. Isaiah chapter 40, just one verse. But this one's a, this one, or two verses. This is a good one. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So what is God, what is, was God saying to us through the Psalms, through the, the prophecy of Isaiah, that there is consolation on the way? Imagine it this way. I have the privilege this morning of preaching with my latest grandchild in the pew. And I can tell you that when these two wonderful parents get a little further down the road with that child, there are going to be moments when they're going to have to punish, when they're going to have to direct and discipline for love's sake. And sometimes the child will come back to mom and dad with real repentance, real regret over their offense, over their misjudgment and misdeeds. And, and when they do, godly parents always respond with tender consolation, right? I mean, when you're in a moment when real authentic grief and regret for sin, for offense, for wounding of another person. When, whenever you're in a moment like that, it's very hard, it's very painful. Um, swallowing your pride is like trying to swallow, you know, a, a rock. I mean, it's just really hard. And then when the person responds with tender consolation, because what happens, mom and dad especially, is that, they, that you see this precious child that you love so much suffering pain because of their offense. There's this sadness and sorrow because they've done something that hurts them as they contemplate how they may have hurt you. And so even though you've sort of got the upper hand, you respond tenderly because you see this person that you love so much in pain because of the pain they caused you. In a minute, this is going to really come together in a way that might blow your mind. I hope so. But for now, just understand that, that the psalmist is admitting that he's trying to be awesome every day, but he's not very successful. And so he feels as though he's failing God, but more than that, he's failing to vindicate God in front of the scoffers, in front of those who, you know, the, Israel's always in this weird dynamic in the Old Testament, especially because one minute God is defending them against the nations in profound and powerful ways that can only be explained as supernatural, superior God events. And, and then the next minute, God's letting them suffer and, and the people that got their behinds kicked by God a few years earlier are laughing because now God seems to have abandoned them. And Israel's saying, okay, okay, so we probably had that coming, but don't forget, we're sorry 
and you're looking bad right now. I mean, it's a, it's a dangerous, a strange relationship that the people of God have with God. And you'll understand more in a minute, I believe, but just keep in mind that God actually invites you to come and debate with God, to, to, to argue like Moses, to argue like Abraham and David, to argue even like the apostles argued with Jesus. And we are to be reminded that God's answer to the call for consolation is Jesus. Well, Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. They look at themselves in the midst of their punishment that they justly deserve, and they see how they're not really being any they're not being treated any differently than the people that were far more evil in their eyes. So here, here's that fundamental question of the Christian experience that we all have to deal with, and that is, is that, that God sees all sin pretty much the same way. That, that we cry out to God because we think there are people out there who are way worse than we are, and they're making our lives miserable. We even sometimes give in to the temptation to suggest to God that we probably wouldn't be as bad if it wasn't for all these rotten people that are around us messing things up. I wouldn't have flipped that guy off when I was driving through town the other day, but he cut me off. That's the way they pray sometimes to God, right? They say, well, God, you got to understand if you would deal with all those people that I wouldn't get mad and I wouldn't sin. Well, back to the parenting thing again. <laughs> You're going to hear that one, I promise you. <laughs> I didn't do anything wrong. It was all her fault. It was all his fault. It's, it's always somebody else's fault that you did something you should not have done. And this is why we need not only God's cons con consolation, but we need God's recompense. Now, recompense is another great word, and I use it intentionally because it's a word from Scripture. Again, I'm trying to figure out why the Lord and I picked this passage, and it, it occurs to me that recompense is a recurring theme in Scripture. Now, recompense is a word that basically would, would be like reparations, um, when I was a kid, I remember it was either one of my brothers or, or one of their friends. I don't remember which, but, but, you know, right after they got their driver's license, they did something stupid, you know, like reckless and knocked a guy's mailbox down in the neighborhood. And so the, the owner of the mailbox and the parent got involved and they agreed that this consolation or the recompense or the, or the reparation was as well, then you're going to fix it. You're gonna buy replacement stuff and you're gonna dig up the broken one and you're gonna fix it. And so it was recompense. And the word recompense would then be better understood as a word that represents reparations for, a, for damages that you've inflicted on another person. In other words, you, you've done something against another person and in order to make it right, you have to provide recompense. Well, God demands recompense. And again, I will argue that part of the reason God demands recompense is because Satan demands recompense. Now that's something we don't talk about very much in church, 
But it's really important to understand that even before us, there is this thing that happened in heaven between God and his principal adversary and those who believed and followed the adversary. I mean, in a way, you can take a little bit of pride in the fact that you have come to faith in Christ without actually having met him in person like the apostles, but take it a little bit further, and even Israel can take a certain amount of pride in in faith in God, the one true God, when even the angels found among their number those who would not believe God. I mean, come on, if you live in heaven, and you see God every day and then you choose not to believe? Think about that from our human point of view. That's absurd. Do you think after those uh, uh, shepherds saw the entire heavenly host for a few minutes, do you think after they saw that they ever had any trouble believing there was a heaven? No, probably not. (laughs) And yet, among those heavenly hosts were those who thought so little of God that they bought the lie of the enemy of God and followed that enemy. See, God's on a mission not only to make us the perfect bride for his son, Jesus Christ, but he is also on a mission to set right what happened long before we entered the picture. And we need to remember that. So recompense is required. Now here's something that should blow your mind every time you think about it. It certainly does Mine, Jesus is our recompense. God sent God's son from a place of equality with God. All the wealth and riches of heaven to a manger, to likely a carved out stone sent his son, the heir of all that heaven and the glory of God can provide to be one of us with all our limitations, with all our physical infirmities. He sent this one to be criticized, crucified, dead, buried. He sent this one to rise again He sent this one to ascend and fill us with the spirit we had no title to without all of the preceding. He did that. And then the most amazing, absurd thing that God did was he said, okay, the only way you can make peace with me is to give me a gift that you can't afford. So what does God do? Think Christmas now. God gives a gift that only God can give to you and says, now give it back to me and we're square. Is your mind blown yet? Think about this. God, in order to save you for all eternity, to save you for marriage to his son for all eternity, has given you his son so that you can give his son back to him as a recompense, as an offering for your sin. Think about that for a minute. Why is Christmas such a big deal? Because God gave God's own son 
to a world that rejected him for the sake of a few who would understand that if they accept God's gift, I'm sorry, if they accept God's gift of the Son and then give the Son back to God. So in a mental exercise, what he's really saying is, is admit that you can't pay me off. You can't provide appropriate reparation for what I have against you. So I'm going to give you everything you need to settle the debt. And then all you got to do is give it back to me. And we're square. That's the nature of your salvation. I don't know about you, but I just need to chew on that for a minute. Jesus is God's answer. Because he's God's recompense. Read Luke chapter 14. One verse. This time I mean it. Luke 14, 14 says, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In other words, God has secured your resurrection like that of Jesus Christ because you gave God the gift that God gave you in exchange for eternal life. But as for me, I shall walk in integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. The accuser has scoffed at our faith and God's grace. The world of the flesh scoffs at our faith and God's grace. And the accuser has lied and turned the occasion of God's incredible grace through the birth of Jesus Christ into a secular holiday that is ridiculous and absurd in the fleshly way of things. And today I'm begging you to spend a little time this week realizing the incredible, immeasurable grace of God to give you a gift that will settle your account with God so that you can be resurrected into eternal and perfect nature on the day of Christ's return, which we celebrate and anticipate through the Advent season. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Burn it into our hearts, I pray, that we might give you glory all the days of our lives that we might be your vindication because we first were vindicated through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Mm -hmm.